Welcome to the Sega Lounge, where we celebrate our love for all things Sega, including the games, the music, and the community. I'm your host, KC. Join me as I talk to different guests and learn more about their projects and passion for Sega. Hello and welcome back to the Sega Lounge. It's been a while since our last episode back in December 2021, but I'm really excited to be back and ready to bring you more amazing content. As I discussed in one of my recent blog posts, find them at thesegalounge.com, 2022 ended up being a bit too much for me, so I decided to take a break from the internet. While this wasn't planned, it also meant I got to relax, play some games, and get energized to bring back this show and hopefully improve upon the work we've done during the past six seasons. I'd like to thank everyone who messaged me asking for the podcast to return. I did get your messages. Your support is greatly appreciated. Well then, let's get going, shall we? We're kicking off Season 7 with a special episode that looks back at some of the best moments from Season 6. I say best, but that's actually unfair. For one, I had a really hard time picking which moments to share today. Also, it's really unfair to leave out other great guests and conversations. But in the spirit of making shorter episodes, which I'm committing to this season, I really had to choose. So I went with eight specific guests we had on the show in 2021. Throughout the season, I've had the pleasure of talking to some incredible guests, each with a unique story to tell about their experiences with Sega and the gaming industry. So, in this episode, I've selected some highlights from those conversations, from stories about how they got their start in the industry to insights into their creative process. These guests have provided us with some truly fascinating and entertaining content. I invite you to listen in as we relive these amazing conversations and get excited for what's to come in Season 7. On the very first interview episode of Season 6, Mark Saville, Communications Officer at Special Effect, came on the show with then-Community Events and Volunteer Coordinator Becky Frost. Here's Mark explaining what Special Effect do and why it's important to support them. It's all about helping people as individuals and helping them to get the very best about from, from their gaming experiences. Um, we essentially... We help people with physical disabilities to to gain to you know the best of their abilities. So what we do uh, is we see people and we ask them what they want to play and what abilities they have, and that can vary from you know somebody who might have an injured thumb right the way through to you know somebody who's got a spinal injury and can only move their eyes or something like that. So and and we then work with them to see what's possible and whether we can get them, you know, playing the games that they want to play. And if we can, then uh, getting them to play to the really, you know, the best they possibly can, because um, uh, that, that's really quite key. It's it's not just helping people to play games. It's helping people to play games as best they can, because that really, really sort of brings out the the best in, in, in people. We um, I was just listening to... Uh, a podcast that our CEO did actually at lunchtime, and he was recounting the story of uh, uh, somebody we helped who who hadn't played his brother at FIFA for fifteen years, and uh, because he'd uh, got muscular dystrophy. But when we worked out a setup for him, 
uh, with assistive equipment. First game he played, he beat his brother 5-1. <laughs> was, you, you can't put a price on that. You really, you know, he's, he was, you know, beaming from ear to ear. So, um, and, and that's the kind of a difference you want to make because, you know, you've got, it's not just about having fun. It's about inclusion. You know, it's about building self-esteem. It's about banter. <laughs> and it's, it's an opportunity to, so people can show other people what they really can do um and and just seeing that come out time after time is 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 an inspiration for for us and which is why we're so excited to tell the stories really um mm-hmm. uh be, because uh there are so many lovely stories about sort of the way that people are benefiting from what we're doing and not and i think not just not just the gamers themselves uh, i was talking to uh, I think the mother of a, a, a gamer a, a while back, uh, about a year or so ago, and she was saying, you know, it it helps me as a parent uh, because the you know my my child can now play games. He can put the headsets on. He can be himself with his friends. You know, when, during the day he's in a wheelchair. He's with a carer all day. You know, his friends come up to him in school. He's a bit restricted in what he can say, what he can do. But at night, you know, uh, when we've set up all the assistive gear, he's able to play with his feet um, and his fingers. Then, as I say, you put the headphones on, I just close the door and he can be with his friends and just be himself. Um, and, and again, that's, that, that's so valuable for people. Speaking of which, if you're listening to this on the weekend it dropped, it's Game Blast 23 time. Game Blast is a huge event that gathers the gaming community around a common goal raising funds in support of Special Effect. I'm taking part alongside fellow Team Radio Sega members, and I'll be streaming on my Twitch channel and doing a radio show on Radio Sega as part of the festivities. If you can, please consider donating toward this amazing cause. Your support is much appreciated. More news on that later. Jörg Tittle is a former official Dreamcast magazine writer, which is the reason why I invited him on the show. As it turns out, there's much more to him than that, and we ended up talking about his upcoming game, The Last Worker. And little did we know at the time that he would also be behind the Cosmic Smash revival in the works for PSVR 2. But the story of how he met Shinya Nishigaki of Ill Bleed fame and ended up getting added as a character to the game is one of the most wholesome moments of Season 6 for me. Uh, I mean, there were many, there were so many, but there's one moment um, that turned into a really dear friendship that I that I will forever cherish, and that was um, when I'd first got wind of this game Illbleed being in development, and uh, and it looked so insane, the sort of B movie uh, uh, slash horror sort of with weird humor thing that was being made by by the guy who who had before that made Blue Stinger, which was fantastic on on Dreamcast. Um, I, I approached him and he was in Japan, uh, Shinya Nishigaki, and, and he and he replied in, in very, uh, uh, very rough English because um, he didn't speak it very well at all. And and so he was started talking to me via translator. And then I said, I really, really wanted to do an article about that for um, um, for, for the official Dreamcast magazine. And not only did I did up being an article in official Dreamcast magazine, it became the cover article of official Dreamcast magazine. And he was so so grateful for that because he didn't have a U.S. publisher yet at the time. And so so this got him a U.S. publishing deal, and uh, and it became this cult thing because everyone started talking about Illbleed. And then 
And then Shinya was so grateful for that. He surprised me one day and created a character that was named after me. Not just named after me, but also looked exactly like me in the game. Exactly like my 18-year-old version at the time. Um, and uh, the, the last name was changed from my weird tittle to Baker. So it was Jorg S. Baker. And uh, <laughs> and then he asked me, okay, I also want you to do some voiceover work for it. I'm like, what? Yeah. Yeah, because I know you're an actor and stuff and stuff. So I um so I went to uh, I was flown to to the West Coast and did this completely bizarre uh, <laughs> uh, uh, voiceover session for two days where where we were. I mean, the script was crazy and it was completely mad and uh, and and we were. I think I'm not sure if we were consciously embracing the sort of B movie tone of it, but you know the performances are notoriously. Uh, I mean, what it could say, pretty terrible. Um, <laughs> but I think it just added to the cult status, yeah. and it fit fit the graphics amazingly well. I mean, it's like it had to be like this. I mean, it couldn't have been performed straight because it would have been weird. And um, uh, and I remember that one day we were all sort of uh, working away. We had very few hours. I mean, the budget was minuscule for the whole thing. And uh, and there was this whole thing set in a warehouse and uh, and uh, some sort of uh, uh, with conveyor belts and stuff. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and we were sort of, uh, uh, saying things like, I forgot the characters' names now, now, but like, oh, uh, oh, such and such is stuck in the, in the, in the belt conveyor. Oh, did you look down the belt conveyor? Oh my God, over there, the belt conveyor. And, and sort of a few hours into this, I go like, uh, I being the only foreigner in the room and all the others Americans, and I go like, um, so I guess, what is a belt conveyor? And they go, yeah, it's the it's the thing in the in the warehouse, you know, the thing in the factory, you know, the kind of oh, f it should be conveyor belt, shouldn't it? <laughs> and so we had half an hour of recording time left, and so we all had to find, we all had to like flip through our pages. This was before, like, I mean, we all used paper, right? So we were, yeah. flip through our pages and find all the lines where belt conveyors were mentioned, script, <laughs> and then re-record them out of context. So now, so Lani Manella, who was directing the whole session. I remember going, okay, let's go. Okay, I found another one. And so everyone was like, oh, uh, hey, find such and such. And the conveyor belt uh, over there. And so, <laughs> so, so yeah, so and the game then came out. It became this this cult. And actually, like a quick shout out to, to my friend Dom, Dominic, who, who actually had a copy of the US version because I lost my original copy of it in the warehouse disaster. And actually, yeah. it's a storage disaster. And he, and he gave it to me and his to me, which was an incredibly precious thing because I, I do revisit it often now and actually actually managed to finish the game now and see my own weird face in it okay um, so that's a big memory and uh, and i miss him dearly yeah. he passed away two years after the game uh was released uh mm. shinya did and uh and uh, he was a dear friend hailing from brazil renato almeida grew up a sega kid and turns out he's also a great storyteller he currently works closely with Sega through his PR company, but the story of how he actually met the current CEO of Sega at E3 a few years ago is definitely an interesting one. I, I was sh shaking a lot, you know, I was really, really nervous, but uh, it helped a lot that that was my first interna international trip ever, and for it was a trip uh, to Los Angeles for E3, you know, so... The yeah. ecstasies and the and the the whole <laughs> the, the whole the whole joy uh, uh, took over. So it helped me to uh, like uh, 
not think about the situation, the, the my nervous breakdown that I could have in a meeting with uh, <laughs> Sega people, you know. Uh, and that's that's all the information that I had. Okay, I knew that yeah. we were going to have a meeting on the second day of E3, and it was going to be like a dinner uh, meeting slash dinner. And okay. With maybe a few people from Sega, whoever yes. they were, right? So yes, nothing yes. special. Yeah, I knew Already that... special because it was Sega, but no yeah. one special, right? Yeah, absolutely. So they told me that uh, a brand manager would be there and mm -hmm. the, the, another person from, from, from the marketing side, and that's it. That, that's everything I knew. And it was nice. And it was great because on the first day of E3, we, we, uh, the three of us, we stopped by Sega's booth. And I saw that my boss was talking to Ken. Remember Ken Ballow? That, that guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from my blog story? He was there. And yeah. I, oh my God, six months ago, I was writing about you, <laughs> you know, inside <laughs> my head, please. I, I didn't tell him that. I, I was. Of course, of course. You were, you were, uh, yes, compose, composure. Uh, yeah, yeah, super serious. Cool. You know, uh, cool businessman, etc. Yeah, of course. Experienced. Yeah. Yes. So, but inside, I was getting crazy, you know, it was <laughs> amazing. But yeah, okay, so Ken will be there. Nice. That's someone that I already know about this guy. I've made my research on him. Okay, cool. And there was this other uh, professional from Sega uh, back in the day, and she's great. I love her. Uh, to this day, Jen Groling. She was uh, creative services at Sega. And that, that's it. I, I knew that they were going to be there, and that's it. And, okay, so let's wait until Wednesday, second day of E3. Let's do our marvelous job at the show floor. And, and when we are done, we will have a great time with a dinner in a, a fancy restaurant with the, the, the Sega people. And <laughs> it was like a, a, a barbecue-like restaurant. And I was very composed. I did my breathing exercises or whatever to to, to, to <laughs> stay sharp. To <laughs> yes, to <laughs> exactly. But when we entered that restaurant, the first person that I that I saw, and it was a thing that which, it was very funny because it was like my vision corrected itself and focused on all, one person only, and it was Haruki Satomi. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I knew him back in the day. He 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 was uh, 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 I don't know if he, if, he, if he was VP already or but he was very close to be uh, the the vice president. Mm -hmm. And I knew that he, that guy was huge. You know, one of the, the one of the big shots at Sega. Of course, everybody yeah. knew that. If if you were a Sega fan back in the day, you knew about him. And my whole work of preparation <laughs> went down the drain, <laughs> the drain you know. <laughs> I had to, I had to cool over, cool, cool, cool down all over again. And I was uh, expect, I, I was thinking, what, what would be my my part on this meeting, you know? Oh my God, what should I say? You know, what would be my reaction? Uh, I was uh, trying to think uh, ahead of me and prepare myself, but. Uh, Obviously, everything started really good. We were introduced, everybody introduced, uh, everybody 
uh, one to the other. So it was okay. So it started with the introductions, some jokes, some laughs. Uh, we talked. We had the opportunity to talk more about Brazil. They told us about uh, the, the 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 plans uh, of Sega of bringing. Uh, uh, this expansion to Brazil in terms of communication and presence and etc etc. Uh, we were also eating, so it was all all doing very very good. My part until that until that part I was only laughing and and adding uh, 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 some phrases here and there, you know, uh, yeah. helping my bosses to tell the story. But uh, at some point, uh, this my, my boss, he, he, he said something like that. But it's also very important uh, that we share our actual uh, uh, impression of Sega's presence here in Brazil, uh, there in Brazil, and, and to, to tell you more about Sega and his disperception, <laughs> uh, uh, I would like to, to Renato, to... Take this stand. <laughs> so I was like uh, thrown. <laughs> Put it in the hot uh, seat. Is, exactly, exactly. So, and it was amazing. I, I don't know what hap ha happened there, uh, but uh, I, I managed to, to secure uh, a good spot and, and, and I had my chance to present my vision and my, mm -hmm. my, my, my thoughts and what I've learned uh, and also all, everything that I've been learning for the past 28 or 27 years. I don't recall if I was 27 or 28 back in the day. But growing up as a, a Sega kid has helped a lot, you know. So because I, I was living that story, I was not only witnessing or only studying, I was living, you know. So yeah. I, I remembered all the difficult times, I remembered all the, the special times, all the great points, all the, the down points, you know. So what I did was like a, a, an honest, uh, uh, like a, a, an honest, my honest take on the whole situation, mm -hmm. plus, plus, uh, sharing what I what I knew and what I thought that could be improved, you know, and mm -hmm. obviously taking this to the PR side uh, and to the communication side, and and it was great. It was great, you know. Uh, uh, we've managed to secure the contract, and I was uh, I was the head of the account from 2011 from July. Of 2020, to March 2014. How do you get to work at Sega? That's probably a question many of us asked growing up. I know I did. Most of us probably never acted on that childhood dream, but Tim, I mean, Sega Master Tim, went so far as strong-arming Sega of Australia into getting him a job. What happened was I became... Like a really big fan of Sega, a really, really big fan. And I I wanted to know more about them. And um, I noticed that when I looked on the back of one of the, of the, uh, the boxes, one of the cartridges of the, um, of the Master System games, there was an address in San Francisco. And I thought, well, how about if I write a letter and tell them how much I love Sega? All right, so I wrote off a letter and sent it off through the mail 
And, um, you know, I was hoping like for a reply or something of that. And um, about, I reckon it was about four, five months later, I got a reply from a girl by the name of Judy Jetay. She sent back a letter. Um, and then we became pen pals from that point on. Um, we were sending letters left, right and centre. I still have the letters to this day. They mean so much to me. Um, I just have a minute, a special little box off to the side. Um, and I can see all the things that were written. So, you know, they're dated like 1989. And she, she, there's one where she writes, uh, uh, have you have you watched the movie Big with Tom Hanks in it? You know <laughs> we're talking about that long ago. Yeah, um, yeah, and and sometimes I would actually call up their hotline, and I would speak to Judy, and um, yeah, it was just, it, it was just so much fun, and she'd send over <laughs> photos, and so I'd send them over too, and um, it, it just made you it's amazing back then how big the world was. Yeah. You know, I, I couldn't yeah. imagine like, you know, here I am almost 50 and I'm talking to you like you're, you're next door to me. Back then that was unimaginable. So yeah, we built this great relationship and, and one day she, I got this package through the mail, this huge box and I hadn't had any warning and anyway, um, I opened it up, and it, I think the game was Gavellius. I think I'm pronouncing it right, um, for the Master System. And what it did was it was showing me, like, stage level and what to do in each stage. And then I realized these are walkthroughs and cheats. So what I had and what I uh, what I had was just absolutely amazing because not only did I have all the walkthroughs for the games uh, in Australia, but I also had all the walkthroughs and cheats for games that hadn't been released. And here's the cherry on top. Games that had not even been announced. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. So, so was it so, like a, a book or? No, no. They were like photocopied sheets. Oh. And what it 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 seemed to have come from their hotline, yeah. So there would be like little inserts and and um, if if you look carefully on the internet, you can actually find examples of these. But these were all just walkthroughs, cheats for tons of games, tons mm -hmm. of games. And I've I'm like, well, this is amazing, and I tried a few of the cheats. That was cool and all that. Anyway, one day I bought a game. Um, I got Afterburner. And then I looked on the back and there was like this Sega hotline, which was up in Sydney. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. Is there a Sega hotline in Australia? So I call them up and I was expecting like it'd be like a recorded message or something like that. But it was an actual hotline. So I rang him up and I... Asked a few questions, tested a few questions. And thought, oh, yeah, they know their stuff. And I also asked, are you actually Seager? And <laughs> they said, yeah, yeah, yeah we're Seager. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. And I hung up the phone. And I just thought, here's my niche. This is what I could do for a living. Um, <laughs> so I was about 18, 
19 when I came about that realisation. So just about every week I was ringing them up and asking them, how do I get a job there? (laughs) (laughs) I kept on bugging them and bugging them. Um, And, yeah, so um, I always say I reckon they just gave in. They thought, oh, look, this guy was it. Just give him an interview, see how we go. (laughs) Um, So bless my parents. They paid for it paid for my flights up there and it it's it's not like you know the sort of cheap flights you can get nowadays for like ten dollars return or anything like that no um it flights back then were bloody expensive so mm-hmm. yeah they paid for my flight up there and back um so i sat there for the interview i had no idea what i was doing i mean look, i've never <laughs> sat in an interview like all I knew what a job was was what my dad did every day. <laughs> you know, so that's, that was my only comprehension of what a job was. Um, so they asked me all these questions, you know, and so you're from Victoria, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Oh, you like Seager? Oh, yeah, love Seager. But the thing back then was that they'd ask you this, like a key question, and that was what makes you, what, what makes you think that you're – most worthy to get a job here. What makes you think? What makes you stand out from anyone else? Mm-hmm. Why should you be working for Sega? And I had it all ready. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> in my bag, I said, well, <laughs> let me show you something. Now, I can't remember what the game was, but I pulled out this sheet of paper and I slid it across the table. I'm reading through this and I'm going, well, we haven't got these sheets. <laughs> Where'd you get it from? And I said, "Oh, well, let me tell you." What did you like cheating. to know? <laughs> oh, okay. And so I go, "Oh, do, do you think? Do you think you got any more?" I go, "Oh, I got a hell of a lot more." And, and I just said, "Oh, well, can we have it?" And I said, "Oh, well, depends, you know." <laughs> so anyway, got back on the plane, back down the Beechworth, and I got a call a few days later, and they offered me a job. Game Blast celebrates 10 years with its 2023 edition, and Team Radio Sega are again taking part. If you're able to, please consider donating to support the work done by Special Effect. My personal campaign can be found at thesegalounge.com slash GameBlast. A link to the full schedule of Team Radio Sega Game Blast 23 activities can be found in the show notes. Thank you for supporting Special Effect. Games are a big part of my life. With my disability, it was one of the only things I could do for enjoyment. So gaming has really opened up that door for me and it helps connect you to other people in this world. I can't do a lot by myself, but I can play video games on my own, which gives me a good sense of independence and achievement. It's just a release from the monotony of the day. If you're not feeling well or you're uncomfortable, it takes your mind off it and gives me something to look forward to. As a parent, it's made so much difference to Chase being able to access video games. It creates a level playing field. He can do an activity that he wouldn't be able to do in normal day-to-day life. But even better, with gaming, he can play alongside someone Special Effect are bringing families and friends closer together through video games. The setups we create are personalised, 
so people can play to the very best of their abilities. And this opens the door to inclusion and independence, confidence and creativity. Help us level the playing field and create many more magical gaming moments. Russ from Retro Game Core came on the show and told me how the 2020 lockdown and being in a creative rut ended up spawning a YouTube channel, which is now his full-time job. Congrats, Russ. Be sure to check out his content if you're into handhelds with emulating capabilities. During the whole COVID lockdown and everything else like that, I was at home for a long time and I was trying to figure out just creative outlets. You know, I've always been involved in creating things. Um... We can talk about this later, but I, I was actually a food blogger for 10 years, uh, and I stopped mm -hmm. doing that around a year ago. And so I, I didn't want to do any food stuff. I was done doing that stuff. I, I'd already written like three cookbooks by then, and I was like, I'm done doing that creative thing, but I want to do something else. And I actually was writing a novel of all things, and I was like, I'm going to write a novel. And so I was getting into it, and I just realized that it wasn't a good fit for that time in my life. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to play some video games. <laughs> I don't need to be creative. I'll go just, like go through the backlog of all the PS4 games that I have, you know? <laughs> and so I, uh, it was, I think, right around the time that like, uh, The Last of Us Part Two came out and stuff. And, uh, so I, I picked up that game and I played through it and I really loved it because it's like, it's almost like playing a movie, you know? Modern games nowadays are so different. So I played through that and I was like, that was beautiful and that was a lot of fun. And then at some point, I saw an advertisement or something, or I watched a YouTube video about the RG350 device, and um, it looked like a good fit. You know, I saw that there were more powerful things out there, but I didn't want to spend a lot of money and stuff. And so I picked up uh, an RG350 for, gosh, I think it was around, uh, you know, 80 bucks or something. And then it took like, it took a month and a half or something to actually get to me. And so it finally gets to me, you know, here in Hawaii, and... Um, I liked it a lot, you know, and I was I was really excited about this idea of being able to play all these games on something that was kind of like a Game Boy, you know, and, and I never really owned a portable handheld system until like the PSP and the Nintendo DS. And so mm -hmm. I really like this idea of playing all these old favorites again. Um, but I found that the um, the software and the firmware and stuff were very difficult to navigate. I'd never used a Linux based system before. Uh, I'd never, you know, I'm, I'm not even very familiar with like Windows PCs or anything. I'm a, I've been a Mac user for almost 20 years now. And so I had to jump back into that and like get reacquainted with PCs and then like learn about uh, Linux and everything else. And as I was learning it, I found that the, the instructions and the guides were just scattered throughout the internet. They were everywhere. You know, you could find a little bit on Discord, but then you'd find a little bit on Facebook and a little bit on Reddit. But there was no, like, single place that I thought was really helpful. Yeah. And so I said, well, this is a good creative place to, like, do this kind of thing. And like I mentioned, <laughs> I had been a food blogger for 10 years. I knew my way around, like, building websites and things like that. And so I built a website and I was like, I'm just going to put RG350 guides on here, basically. And uh, I did I did that for several months, actually. Um, and I made a couple YouTube videos, but the only reason I made them on YouTube was to embed them onto the website. I wanted everyone to go to the website. I didn't really want anyone to subscribe to me on YouTube. I was just looking at having a better 
like experience for the browser when they're going through my website. Um, but then all of a sudden, like I, I, I got an RG351P and I was like, well, let me do like a review on this, an unboxing or something. And a Retroid Pocket 2, I got grabbed one of those two and I just started expanding the website a little bit. And then all of a sudden I realized that I was getting a lot more um, intention and, or um, engagement and stuff on the YouTube channel than I was mm-hmm. on the website. And I thought, well, let, let me just push these together and do like equal parts effort on both of them. And so ever since then, yeah, that's so I started uh, I started the website in like late July and then I started really getting into the YouTube videos around September time frame and um, around October, I actually went back to work. I was I was doing home, you know, like working from home all the yeah. way up through October and then I went back to work right when I was starting to really pick up momentum with the YouTube channel. So now ever since then, I've just been kind of straddling the two, doing my day job and then coming home and doing what I can. And then on the weekends, just like full tilt, doing as much work as I can for the for the YouTube channel. So relatively new. We were about, you know, six months into yeah. it now of mm-hmm. me being dedicated to the YouTube channel. But um, mm-hmm. it's been a lot of fun. And I, it's video is something I never really was comfortable doing. Um, that's why mm-hmm. you don't see my face on camera and stuff, because I never <laughs> felt like uh, I was well suited for video. I like writing, you know, I've always been uh, pretty handy at that. Um, but the video is a whole new medium. And I found out once I got the hang of it, that it became very exciting for me. You know, um, I was a photographer with the food blogging stuff as well. So I knew my way around a camera, but never in the way of making video. And so it's just been a learning experience. You know, I, I cringe every time I watch one of my older videos because I'm like, oh, I was such an idiot even a month ago, you know. Uh, <laughs> but nowadays, you know, it's getting a little bit better every time. So have I ever told you I'm a big Shenmue fan every week? Nice. After Corey Marshall and Lissel Wilkerson in previous years, Season 6 brought along another OG Shenmue voice actor to the Sega Lounge. Eric Kelso was a delight to talk to, and he even shared some of his Ericisms. When asked about the most iconic character he ever voiced, Eric had this to say. I would have to say Ren from Shenmue 2. Yeah? Um, A lot of people, you know, know me as Jackie. Um, but he doesn't really have a lot of lines. A lot of mm-hmm. people know me as uh, Paul Phoenix from Tekken. Um, but I would say the Shinmu fans are the hardest core. Yeah. You know, I mean, because of them, a game that had been dead for 15 years came back to life just because of them, basically. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in that whole time, I've been in contact with the Shenmue fans of the game. And um, they've included me on things. They've, they've asked my opinion or interviewed me. And, and they, came, they come to Japan to do the, the sojourn of, of Ryo kind of thing. Yeah. And they contact me and we go out for dinner and drinks. And, and so they've they really formed kind of a family and a very loyal following. And so... They have made me appreciate that game even more. And uh, I think Ren is the character of all the characters of all the games I've done who has had the most lines and the most kind of uh, character development. I'm not sure how far Ren can really develop, but uh, he's a <laughs> fairly two-dimensional dude. But um, I like him a lot. I like mm-hmm. Ren a lot. I think, you know, he's he seems to be really cocky kind of just money hungry selfish guy but actually you know he helps Rio out a lot and he's they've become good friends 
So he, he's been the most fun to do, at least, for sure. Yeah. It's like the, the anti-hero, right? Kind of thing. Yeah, for Type sure. guy. <laughs> and he's kind, of the, he's kind of the comic relief of the show as well, of yeah. the game. You know, I, I get all the good lines. A testament to the passion of the Shenmue community. Let's get Shenmue 4. When I ask him what makes Shenmue such an incredible and impacting experience, Eric also provided great insight. It's, it, well, it, you know, technically it was the first real like in-world kind of game that you could play. You could walk around and check things out and open doors and, you know, get food and talk to people. And it was, it was just so immersive into a, a whole new world. And I think that had never really happened before. And that's part of Suzuki-san's brilliance of just creating completely new ways of playing. So I think that, that was really um, addictive in a way. And um, it's almost a spiritual engagement, you know? I mean, it has a real wonderful Asian, kind of Japanese and Chinese kind of magic to it that I think a lot of people in the West have never experienced before, which is very appealing to me. I, I mean, I live in Japan, so that's always appealed to me. And... Um, It, the, the graphics, uh, the, everything. I think it was just mm -hmm. very intelligent and very thought out. And it wasn't just like a kid's game that you play. It was an experience, you know, that, mm -hmm. that even adults can be, you know, fascinated by. And I think it takes some, some dedication. It's not the kind of game that you just, you know, stick a quarter in and, and play for one round and then, you know, go play another game yeah you know it's the kind of thing where you if you're going to sit down and play you're going to be there for hours mm -hmm. and i think that was the first game to really give that experience dean mortlock stopped by the sega lounge last season to share some stories of his days working as a video game journalist and to tell us more about a new sega mag called sega powered i was curious to know what the tone of this new publication was going to be How does this new Sega Mag compare to the tongue-in-cheek style of Sega Power, and what's the focus of the editorial team? Hopefully we'll keep it fun. Sega Power was known at various stages for being quite, quite hopefully a funny mag. I mean, it was, we didn't take it all too seriously. Um, but what obviously you have to bear in mind is that, as you understand, the audience has grown up with the format. So the people that were buying Sega Mags 25 years ago are now in their 40s. Um, so you, you have to adjust the tone accordingly. And also the audience that we're aiming at are a lot more hardcore, they're hardcore gamers, you know, they're not, they're not casual gamers like they used to be. They're people that, you know, have been, are still playing games on, on Sega formats on a regular basis. They know their stuff and they expect you to know your stuff as well. Otherwise there's no point in buying the mag. Um, so we will be kind of, we'll do some fun stuff, but equally we'll, We'll do some kind of more, we'll make sure it's it's informative, interesting. It's going to be quite packed. There's a lot in there. And the features will have a lot of elements to them. There's, there's lots you can dive and in, dip into. Um, because, as I said, you know, the, the people that are buying it, they, they, they don't want to read stuff they already know. And they don't want to read kind of stuff that isn't of interest. They want to make sure it's interesting. So we're doing, um, we're going to do a lot of homebrew stuff. We're going to do a lot of independent stuff because there's obviously still a growing community in that where new games are being released and the new games are being released regularly. Um, as you know, there's, there's a, a, the whole Sonic challenge has just been announced, so the, the kind of fan-made versions of the games and the levels, and they're, 
some of those are fantastic. So we'll be covering all that sort of stuff as well, just because I find it interesting. And I think other people will, if they're not into that whole scene, then I'm sure they get something out of it. So, so yeah, mm-hmm. there's, there's a whole, we're co- trying to cover quite a lot in, in a single mag, but I think we've got, a, we've got it focused to now the point where we kind of know the structure of the mag. Now it's just a case of finish filling on the pages. The tone is, I mean, we're, we're adults now and, and the, the people that are buying the mags are generally going to be adults. So we will, we will talk to them as adults, but have, you know, again, have a little bit of fun along the way. And if somebody says, but you, this is the thing, you always get somebody says, oh, it's too serious or it's not fun enough or it's too silly. You, you never kind of, you never make everyone happy. But as long as 90 or so percent are extremely happy, then I've done my job well. Finally, I really need to highlight my chat with industry legend David Warhol. This was a listener's suggestion and one I am very glad I followed through with. Here's David sharing the story of how the character Bug came to be. I had two producers at the time, Anne Lodayev and David Bean, and we were having dinner one night. And it was Anne Lodayev who, you know, when we were just knocking around, what kind of characters? A penguin? Who's done a penguin? How about an armadillo? No, that's right. And it was Anne who said, I know, bug. And then it just was like, oh, yeah, that makes so much sense. So I, I got to credit Anne with, with introducing that into the conversation. Um, and then uh, we gave that over to Jeff Cook, our art director. And Jeff... Um, at first, I don't know if you guys remember the uh, Bloom County cartoon character, Bill the Cat, this totally mangy cat that was anti-Garfield. It was just one big bulging eye, one you know, tongue hanging out to the floor, just this, this outrageously uh, insipid cat. So our first concepts for uh, Bug were to go with that kind of Bill the Cat kind of thing. He was from the wrong side of the tracks or wrong side of the garden kind of thing, just this you know, mangy, mangy bug. And we had done a couple of iterations for Jesse uh, Taylor at the time. And he was like, nah, this isn't in the mark. Nah, this isn't good. Nah, this isn't Disney enough. So Jeff finally uh, really cleaned up the character. And if, if this hasn't been brought out before, um, if you take a look at like big red shoes, Mickey Mouse, white gloves on the hands, Mickey Mouse, two big googly eyes. Well, Mickey Mouse has two big googly ears. The, the idea was to cast it in something that somebody would feel immediately familiar with. Wow. Uh, you know, I get it. Uh, I, I can identify with this character because we have for 100 years now. Um, so Bug was different enough, uh, but still familiar enough. So that's where that's where the, the graphic look uh, came from. And yeah, Jeff was a, a brilliant artist on that. And uh, incidentally, he did a character study of Bug where he did eight or nine expressions to kind of a little character Bible where uh, he was confused and he was angry and he was uh, devilishly, um, you know, just all of these expressions. And as I was looking at it, I'm saying, this is great, but Jeff, I've seen you make all of those expressions, you know, all of these uh, Jeff was a very expressive guy, but when he when he looked confused, he would put on this really totally confused face, and and there it was on Bug as well. So he was probably very autobiographical in the, the emotional range that Bug has was uh, was all Jeff. And probably my favorite moment from this interview was this bit of information about the Saturn's two processors. Another thing I like to say about uh, Bug uh, is that. You know, the, the Saturn had two processors, but you needed to figure out how to get them to operate without stepping on one another. 
And because we were so focused on the fun, the gameplay factor, you know, how can we make this thing great? Um, the first thing the first processor did was turn off the second processor, and then we ran the whole game on the first processor, which which worked just fine because we weren't trying to do that 3D rendering. I mean, the backgrounds were all 3D rendered. Those were those, but that's where we chose to put the the power of the of the uh, graphics chips and all that. I had a lot of fun reliving these moments and I hope you did too. Of course, leaving out all the other guests is unfair. And let's not forget about the great roundtable and documentary style episodes featuring our good friends from around the Sega community. Those were all a great deal of fun to do and I'm hoping to get more of them done this year. So the only solution here is go listen to the entire season six. It's available everywhere. So this means the Sega Lounge is officially open for another season. Yay! Next week, we'll be back with some friends of the show to take a look back at the year of 2022 in terms of what Sega had to offer, as well as share our expectations towards 2023. It's not like it'll be March by then or anything, right? As always, if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you. So don't hesitate to reach out and let me know what you think. Podcast at thesegalounge.com is the email address to use, but you can also use our social media outlets. And we now have an email newsletter to remind you of new shows and new stuff happening around the lounge, so be sure to subscribe to that. A good way to do so is to head over to thesegalounge.com slash newsletter. That's it. I'm out of here. Thank you so much for listening. It's great to be back. Follow us on your podcast app of choice and come back next week for some more Sega goodness. Bye-bye. The Sega Lounge. Hosted by me, KC, and part of Radio Sega's network of live shows and podcasts. Theme song and incidental music by OSC. Find them at opusciencecollective.bandcamp.com. Got any suggestions? Drop me an email to podcast at thesegalounge.com. Follow us on Twitter at thesegalounge and like us at facebook.com slash thesegalounge. You can find previous episodes of the show by going to thesegalounge.com and wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Mixed on Productions Podcast.